our scripture reading is about Martha and Mary. And if you'd like to turn along with me, it's in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Thank you, Parker. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you as uh, many of us are like Martha that we are distracted uh, with much working or serving or whatever that may look like for us. And so we come to you as like Martha in need of being like Mary, to sit at your feet and to worship you. And so, Lord, would you enable us to just pause, to slow down, and to appreciate who you are and what you've done for us? that you would teach us, that we would sit at your feet and hear from your word tonight as you teach us how to live, as you correct us in ways like you corrected Martha, that we have been so distracted and we need to focus on you. God, would you have the attention of our hearts tonight that you would make in us a clean heart an undistracted heart, that we would be healed from the hurry sickness that we have, and that we would be able to focus on you totally undistracted so that we can worship you in song and praise in spirit and in truth. That just as we sing tonight, that God, our, our hearts will sing throughout our day-in, day-out jobs, and even how we rest when we're away from those jobs, as we aim to strike that balance of what it means to work and to rest. So God, would you be with us tonight as we sit at your feet and worship you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If last week was the sermon in the series that you had been waiting for, wanting to hear from God's Word how to glorify God in the workplace. Uh, I think this sermon is the one in the series you probably need to hear the most. Um, last week, we learned what it means to work to the glory of God. And we saw we can glorify God with our character, with our performance, with our relationships, with even our conflicts, and then with our message. There is, however, one other way that I found 
that we can work to the glory of God. Um, but it's something that I wanted to focus on tonight and really dive into. And it sends us back to our first sermon that we had in this series. Um, we looked at Jesus's invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Um, in that sermon, I, I gave you a quote from uh, John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, as he talked about what he called hurry sick. It's something that we, it's kind of the air we breathe in society now, that we're all hurry sick. And the quote that I want to remind you, and we'll have it on the screen, uh, John Mark Comer says, hurry is a form of violence on the soul. Think about that for a second. Hurry is a form of violence on the soul. In your conversations with people, has anyone ever started off an invitation or a request uh, with this phrase? I know you're busy, but I know you're busy, but would you like to hang out this weekend? I know you're busy, but could you help me with this task on this project? Or I know you're busy, but I wanted to see if there was anything you needed from me. Now, this might be just a polite way for someone to interrupt you from your work. But it can also serve as a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. It can serve as a warning that you are working too much, and not just at your work, but in every avenue of your life. So hear me when I say, I know you're busy. I know you're busy. And I'm here to warn you that your busyness is hurting your soul. Busyness may or may not be sin. I'll, be, I'll admit, I'm, I'm still kind of figuring that out. Even in just preparing for these sermons in this series, I still haven't gotten a straight answer because I look at Jesus and his ministry and it's like, the son of God looks busy. <laughs> but at the same time, he did what he had to to make sure he wasn't overwhelmed and overcommitted in a way that we just, that's what we have to deal with in our fallen humanness. But even if being busy isn't necessarily sin, it certainly behaves like sin because it can oftentimes corrupt and take away. So let's see from God's word how Christians should approach time. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, looking at just a few verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, to see how we as Christians should approach time and address the enemy that keeps many of us from making the most of the life that God has given to us. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 15 through 17 say this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, 
but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This time, I'd like for us to just kind of bow our heads and just offer up a prayer to the Lord in in your mind and just ask the Lord to teach you from this text tonight of how you manage your time and address the enemy of the days. Uh, Would you just utter that prayer to the Lord? Well, Lord God, we love you, and we do pray that you would teach us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a few observations we can make about this text. The first is we just need to see, all right, who who is Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And so he's writing to Christians to instruct them. The second is that we should give great care to how we spend our time. Right? Isn't that the thing he's communicating to the church in Ephesus? When he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. That's what he's after. That We should give ourselves to wise ways to spend our time. Time that should be given to that which is best. To give our time to that which is not the best would be unwise. So wisdom would have us to believe that the enemy of what's best isn't necessarily what's worst. Sometimes the enemy of what's best is that which is good, but less than what's best. So we have to assess what's the best way to use our time, not just merely what is a good way to use our time. And we can learn that if we don't give any attention to our time, then we are letting evil reign over this, us, because the days are evil. So one might even say to give no attention to time is evil. Think on that for a second to give no attention to time whatsoever could be deemed evil. Ultimately, our time is not our own. We are stewards of the time as it is given to us by God's grace to use for the purposes that far outlast us. And the greatest enemy to stewarding that time is busyness. So at this point, a definition would be very helpful, wouldn't it? Let's define busyness. Busyness is habitual overcommitment. Let's see that on the screen. Busyness is habitual overcommitment. We are so hurried, always in a rush, running late. And it's because we are less than fully committed. We have a variety of commitments, and we can't do any of them well. A habitually busy person does not multiply their efforts, they divide them, weakening their overall impact and undermining the true value of their commitment. 
And the, the answer is not to perfect the art of multitasking. I was reminded of just the myth of multitasking last night. As I'm on my way to the grocery store, I'm listening to a podcast and I realize I'm in this intersection and like trying to wait my turn to go. And I've realized I, I've totally not listened to the last 30 seconds of this podcast. I have no idea what they said. And so I have to go back to the 30 seconds and, and, and listen to it because I have not done multitasking well because it's practically impossible. No, that's not the answer. The answer is to practice establishing margin. You need to practice establishing margin in your life. So going back to our conversation last week on how do I magnify the glory of God in the workplace? The sixth way I would tell you to do that is with your margin. The sixth way you can magnify the glory of God in your work is your margin. Margin is that space between your load and your limit. What you've been given and what you can actually do. When you establish margin in your work, you are fighting this, this tendency to overcommit and then tirelessly try to keep those commitments at the price of your own soul. Margin can rescue you from that. Before we delve into establishing margin and what that looks like, we have to get to the bottom of our tendency to overcommit and become busy. So why do we let ourselves get busy? Well, I want to give you four reasons of why that may be. Four reasons we're busy. The first of which is pride. Pride. Of all the possible problems contributing to our busyness, it is very likely that the one that has the, is the most pervasive is pride. But pride is the villain with a thousand faces. In fact, I get that from uh, Kevin DeYoung in his book, Crazy Busy. This is a resource I would uh, submit to you as just a very helpful tool. Uh, he says even in the front, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. Uh, I, I've read through this book twice in both of them while, while I was on vacation to help me manage busyness and my time and my commitments. And so he, in this book, gives us the form of pride that this can take, and, and he calls it the, the nine killer P's. The nine killer P's. He says pride can take the form of people-pleasing. We say yes to too many people because we want them to like us or we fear their disapproval. Pats on the back. We live for the praise of others. Performance evaluation. Now, that was one of the ways that we magnify the, the glory of God in the workplace that we looked at last week was your performance. But when you act like everything is up to you because you're the best, you're going to get busy. Possessions, we work to earn stuff. Proving myself, we have ambition rooted in our own vain glory. Pity, we want people to feel sorry with how busy we are. Poor planning, we overestimate what can be done and 
underestimate our own limitations. Power, we simply desire control. Perfectionism, we want our vision to be reality. Prestige, we want to be somebody. We want to have this sense of arrival. And then posting, we want to look like we have it all together. Let's be humbled together. <laughs> Let's look at uh, Colossians 1, 16 through 17, which says, For by him, talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. What a humbling passage. Because it communicates to us, Jesus doesn't need you to be busy. In fact, Jesus doesn't need you. And that's freeing if you will let it. If you will let that free you up, we can see where busy finds its place and where pride is humbled. Because the, the truth of the matter is, we get to participate in God's redemptive work. That it is as much a treat to us as it is the world. And when you have that perspective, you're freed up to serve God as he would lead you to do so. Instead of being busy and convincing yourself that it's for the Lord when it's actually for yourself. So the first, way, first reason could be pride. Second reason could be insecurity. Insecurity. We forget that our favor with God is based upon the saving work of Jesus Christ. And our works contribute nothing to our salvation. Nothing. They can be a healthy response to the grace that's been shown us, but never a means to earn it or deserve it. That, that's not grace at that point. So if you are anxiously trying to earn favor with God, whether that's some significant spiritual experience or maybe some grand gesture for Him, I have no problem communicating to you what God views that as. Uh, you may think He views it as, a, as like a parent taking a good grade and posting it on the fridge. But that's not how he views works. If you're, if you're doing them to earn favor with him, if you're doing these works to earn favor with God, he looks like, like a parent looks on a dirty diaper in need of being changed and cleaned up. It's found in Isaiah where God says, your works are like filthy rags if you're doing them to earn favor with him. 
when you get busy about working for Jesus, it may reveal the heart that is insecure about its spiritual disposition. We need to be reminded of what Colossians 3, 2 through 3 says. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is purely by the saving work of Jesus Christ that you are saved. And every work you do is a response to that grace that has been shown to you. That you have received. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. And that is a promise that enables us to rest in Jesus Christ and the work He has accomplished without our help. Pride, insecurity. Third, fear of quiet or being alone. Fear, specifically, of quiet or being alone. When was the last time you embraced silence? I mean, like, complete silence. Like, no fridge, humming, no music playing, no sirens going off in the distance. Complete silence is increasingly foreign to us. We almost can't find it anymore. I think the closest we've gotten recently is the snowstorm that came about a month ago, right? Where the snow has muffled the sound. Not many people are out driving. And we're not, there's no real running water. We have no real reason to run water if there's a boil advisory. So you just sit in bed. Silence. Left only with your thoughts. And you hate it. Are you scared of not being busy? Because your work is a distraction from the things you hate thinking about? The things that weigh you down? Things you avoid dealing with? You're missing out. Because while you think you're alone in silence, you aren't. In fact, we have a God who loves to meet with his people in silence and solitude. And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he knew this to be true. Because in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 43, it tells us, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. And he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to others as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Now you may say that doesn't, that doesn't add up, right? Like, why would you get away to a desolate place if your purpose is to share about the good news of the kingdom of God? But Jesus understood striking that balance between silence and solitude for the purpose of work and ministry, didn't he? And that's what I'm getting at, is that we need to be more like Jesus in this area. We need to get alone in silence and solitude so that we can do effective work and ministry. Do you get it? We go to the desolate place so that we can go to the job, so that we can go to the people for the same purpose, communicating the good news of the kingdom of God. 
Jesus saw silence and solitude as something essential for the ongoing work, not something to be avoided at all costs. And then fourth, fourth reason we're busy is lack of direction. Lack of direction. We forget or are ignorant to the clear direction of the Lord. Going back to the garden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we were created in the image of God, bearing inherent value in and of ourselves because we bear the image of God. And we were designed to reflect the glory of God throughout all the earth. As he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. And we were told to work and to keep. And we magnify the glory of God in that task so much as we display his holiness. Remember, last week we looked at what is God's glory? It is his holiness on display. And so we magnify the glory of God so much as we pursue personal holiness. And so this brings us back to Ephesians 5.17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, many of you look at that verse and you just feel tortured because you're convinced I've got to figure out the mysterious will of God. And that's not what he's saying here because you cannot figure out the mysterious will of God, the, the, his will of decree, what he has decreed to come to pass. You can't figure it out. And that's not what Paul's saying here. What he's talking about is God's revealed will what he expects from you. And when we lay down our life as a clear yes to that command, which he has given to us, that he expects of us, then the no's will become all the clearer. We'll know what to say no to because we've laid down our life as a yes. And you will become less busy as you're focused on what is best what is best? And so in this effort, I want to give you four tips to establish margin in your life. Four tips to establish margin in your life. The first, don't glorify busyness. Don't glorify busyness. Being busy is not a badge of honor. It doesn't show how important you are. In fact, if I'm just being honest with you, when somebody starts out a conversation with, I know you're busy, I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of insulted. It's gotten to that point because I've made it my, my practice of eliminating busyness and even the appearance of busyness. So when somebody says, I know you're busy, I, I kind of look at them like they just told, said a cuss word. I keep a calendar with appointments. I manage time before and after church functions, so I make myself accessible. If someone wants time with me, I make time because people aren't interruptions. To be perpetually busy is to be scattered and drained. And what do we communicate about God when we're... We overload ourselves and we whine about it. Sorry, man, I can't do that. I'm busy. I don't want that for me. And I certainly don't want that for you. 
So make it a point to glorify God, not your busyness. Start treating busyness as the illness that it is, right? If we call it hurry sickness, we need to be healed from it. You don't, just like you don't celebrate a gutter ball when you go bowling, don't celebrate your busyness. I don't know if you've ever just like thrown one right in the gutter and you turn back to your friends and you just, you feel ashamed. Like, I'm sorry, guys, y'all shouldn't have brought me here. Right? We, we should feel a sense of healthy shame about our busyness, that things have gotten out of control and I do need some help. Then build around your yes. Build around your yes. That's the second tip for establishing margin in your life. How are you personally fulfilling the mission of Christ? Is he the foremost in your life? Right, if we talk about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if he is the foremost in your life, then his plan should sit at the top of your list of things to do. If we go back again to the garden, Genesis 2, 15 through 17, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Right, we looked a couple weeks ago about how that's, right, that, that's the Lord's sovereign plan and his placement. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, sovereign purpose. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The temptation that Adam and Eve faced, that we face as well, to build our identity and to fulfill our task apart from God and his clear revelation of what to do and what not to do must be resisted. We've got to resist that temptation to do life apart from God and to do it our way. Not only will we miss out on the potential of all God intends to do through our yielded labor to work and to keep, but we are guaranteed failure and even death apart from him. Your yes must be a personal application of the yes you were created for. You are committed to doing what God ex expects of you, that that's your yes. It, your yes is his yes. And so what does that look like practically? Well, create a time budget, also known as a calendar. <laughs> And keep your appointments. Organize your tasks. I don't know if you've seen that grid of what's important and urgent and not important and not urgent. Right? If it's important and urgent, do it and do it quickly. If it's important and not urgent, okay, you got some time to plan. If it's urgent and not important, delegate it to somebody else. And if it's not important and not urgent, let it die. <laughs> And then practically this season of singleness, it doesn't come as a free pass on the kingdom productivity. So what that could look like is that you have a nightly time with the Lord now so you know how to lead your family and family worship when you have one of your own. 
You serve in the church by teaching young kids who won't listen to their parents because they're boomers. You take a whole week off from work to go on a mission trip and be challenged to share the gospel abroad. Here's what I'll tell you. You have more time and more liberty as a single adult than you will ever have as a spouse or a parent. I'm going to say that again because some of you don't believe me. You, you have more time and liberty as a single adult than you will ever have as a spouse and a parent. Don't squander it. If I can use my life, my experience as an illustration for you, I'll, I'll tell you this. I was thinking about, uh, this was years ago, I was thinking about leaving a, a cushy position at Bellevue as fourth and fifth grade director and asking the Lord, do you have something else for me? I'm feeling this draw towards seminary. And one of the things, one of the variables was, what am I doing with this season of singleness? Am I doing right now what can only be done as a single adult? And the answer was no. And so I had to weigh those options of, of all right, would it be actually easier and better to go to seminary as a single adult? And the answer was Yes. So that is one variable in a collection of variables. It added to my discernment of figuring out it, what is the Lord calling me to? Right now, with what you're doing, and it may or may not be work-related, are you doing what you can only do as a single adult? Are you doing what you can only do as a single adult in this season of your life? If not, you may look at how can I leverage this season to the glory of God in a fresh and mighty way. Don't squander it. Third, set aside time for intentional rest. Set aside time for intentional rest. Rest should replenish. <laughs> it should make us more effective. Not become an idol we must work to tear down. Right? Some of us need to repent from the me time we've said we deserve. The age-old practice of Sabbath may be something worth exploring. It's where we forcefully slow down to think and meditate and ponder and worship the God of the Bible, not ourselves. We rest from our work as a sign of fulfillment. Just as God rested on the seventh day, not because he needed it, but to show the completeness of creation and to set the standard for us, his exhaustible creatures who desperately need rest. So it is good to rest. It is good to rest from our work where we can Utilize some of the do not disturb features on our phones so that we don't get emails when we're away from our desk. It's good to rest from consumption and, and practice the spiritual discipline of fasting, of going without. It is good to rest from people that we mark off specific, specific times and days where we, we don't have appointments with people because we have appointments with God. It's good to rest from media, to utilize the, the limiting of apps on your phone. I'll be honest with you, 
Thursday at 4.29, every week, my, half of my apps go dark. And, and they don't appear back on my phone until Friday at 4.30. I go a full 24 hours without those apps of, of social media and games to just take a break. And that, that's good, and I appreciate that. It is good to rest from even recreation in some ways because we work at our play. And we come away more exhausted than when we started. The reason we enjoy things like retreats is that man, we, have a, we have to clear out our schedule to do them. And if I can just make a little plug, you might want to clear your schedule for mid-July as we look to do a summer retreat. Thanks. I'll speak more about good quality rest next week, but here's something, something to think about. Um, David Murray in his book, Reset, it's really another good resource I would encourage you to read if you're interested. Uh, he says, what sermon are you preaching in your sleep? He says, show me your sleep pattern and I'll show you your theology. Because we all preach a sermon in our sleep. If you pride yourself on sleeping five hours a night, you preach the following truths. I don't trust God with my work, my church, or my family. I don't respect how my creator has made me. I don't believe that the soul and the body are linked. I don't need to demonstrate my rest in Christ because I worship idols. What sermon are you preaching in your sleep? And then lastly, learn to say no. Learn to say no. Uh, Kevin DeYoung again says in his book, Crazy Busy, one of the reasons we never tame the busyness beast is because we are unwilling to kill anything. We need to be careful with other people's desperate requests and how they impact our personal calendar. Poor planning on their part doesn't necessarily uh, necessitate urgency on ours. Many times, the needy people in your life need more of Jesus than they do you. You don't always owe them an explanation. I will say, if you feel bad about it, make your calendar the bad guy. <laughs> don't say you're busy, right? We're trying to move away from that. And, and don't lie. Tell your friend who didn't plan ahead, <laughs> that you already have something scheduled at that time, right? Going back to making appointments with God. And if you do not have an appointment, then by all means, help them. Some of you are still thinking that's, that's being rude. Uh, in your mind, the only Christian thing to do is to stop what you're doing and help. <laughs> and you may even cite the parable of Good Samaritan. If that is your conscience, here are some parameters to even help you in that. Um, Consider these things. Consider your existing obligations. What commitments have you already made? Then consider your nearest neighbor. Who warrants the best and the most of your time? I would say, use the example of family. Right? I've talked to some of you um, about having to miss certain things. And that's, 
you know, that's fine. I love hearing that it's because you're spending time with your family. That's when I'm just, yes, yes and amen. Go to the lacrosse game. Spend time with your family. Spend time with your siblings, your, your mom, your dad. Because that's time you won't get back, right? That's time we treasure. And that's good. Who warrants the best and the most of your attention? I would argue the church needs to be on up there. <laughs> that we love gathering together like this. That we were designed for community like this. On Wednesday nights, on Saturday night, on Sunday morning, whenever it is. Serving at Bellevue Loves Memphis Saturday. That that's time we treasure. Because it's people. It's with people we treasure. So consider your nearest neighbor. Consider the outcome of your help. Is there something that only, is it something that only you can do that you're gifted in? And then consider the outcome of your refusal. Will the job get done regardless of your involvement? Because it may be okay to opt out. I'll be the first to admit, learning to say no is hard but you'll see that the yes is always worth it. When you have laid your life down as a yes to the Lord's command, saying no to good things in light of what's best, it's always worth it. When you're having a difficult time with that decision of whether or not to commit, a good rule of thumb is to go with your spiritual gifts. Has the Holy Spirit gifted you to do what is being asked of you? If not, that may be a clear indicator. At the end, we all want to be like Jesus, don't we? We all want to be like Jesus, especially when he says what he says in the high priestly prayer of John 17, where he utters in a prayer to the God the Father, in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Don't be busy with things God has not given you to do. Instead, be balanced in your approach to glorify him on earth, doing that which he has given you and only you to do. Again, Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 